We're in Acts 3 tonight. Last time we closed by looking at the four things that the brand new church practiced on a consistent basis. Let's say them together. Doctrine, fellowship, breaking of bread, and prayers. Now, they did that without ceasing. That was their habit right there. They had four holy habits and uh, powerful habits, life-changing habits. You can have good ones or you can have bad ones. I want us addicted to the things of God. Now, chapter 2 ended on the victorious note, and the Lord added to the church how often? Daily, those who were being saved. Now, chapter 3 begins with verses that inspire an old song, and I'm dating myself here, but when I came to the Lord and we used to have Bible studies, we would sing this song, and it went, Peter and John went to pray. I would sing it for you, but I don't want to drive you out before I'm finished. Peter and John went to pray. They met a lame man on the way. He held out his palm and asked for an alm, and this is what Peter did say. Silver and gold have I none, but such as I have give I thee. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise up and walk. Now, when we did it, we called it a devotion in motion song. So we acted like we were running, and we acted like we were leaping. But that's when we were 18. (laughs) Now, let me read the real verses that song came from. First three verses of chapter 3. Now, Peter and John went up together to the temple at the hour of prayer, the ninth hour. And a certain lame man from his mother's womb, or man lame from his mother's womb, was carried. What a terrible way to live. Whom they laid daily at the gate of the temple, which is called beautiful, to ask alms from those who entered the temple. Can you imagine, folks, waiting every day for somebody to come, pick you up, several people, pick you up, and and carry you and set you down where you're going to beg. Is that a is that a God exalting lifestyle? Is that, is that what God intended? No. So this is this man's life. Now let's read on. They laid him at the gate of the temple, which is called Beautiful, to ask alms from those who enter the temple. Who, seeing Peter and John about to go into the temple. He held out his palm and he asked for an alm, and this is what Peter did say. Now, let me just stop there a minute and tell you that Peter and John were going to the temple to pray at the ninth hour. Now, the ninth hour was 3 o'clock in the afternoon. That's a very relevant time because it's the same magic moment when at Calvary, the mysterious midday, midnight, it was midnight at midday, remember? darkness at high noon. It was when that had lifted. You can read about that. I put the verses there so you can read them. It was the moment, three o'clock, when the sin bearer, our Savior, had released his spirit to the Father, bowed his head, and died. Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And he went, his spirit went straight in the presence of the Lord. And he modeled for us the way it happens when we as Christians, when our bodies die. Absent from the body, present with the Lord. As soon as Jesus committed his spirit to the Father, his body died, and he was as dead as any man ever was dead. But his spirit immediately went in the presence of the Father. Amen. And that's what happens with you and me. Now, the man Peter and John encounter on the way to pray clearly has led a tragic life. He's been lame, the Bible says, from his birth. His parents had looked at their new little boy and realized his legs weren't right. They saw it early on. You know how your heart would sink. 
As time passed, it only grew worse until finally the full magnitude of the way his life was really going to be was clear, and that is you're never going to stand on your own. You're never going to walk. So he had this never over his life. He had this never. You're never going to stand, and you're never going to walk. At least that's what he thought because a miracle is about to walk his way. Isn't it amazing when Jesus comes along, how things change? And so in Jesus' day, this meant only one thing. He only had one option to make a living by, and that was begging, holding out his hands for handouts, hoping for pity and compassion on the people that passed by. And that's the way he, that's, that was his job description. That was his resume. That's all he could do. Now, one thing he did do right, he had an excellent spot to beg from. He chose a great spot, the gate of the temple. He had been placed on the steps leading up to the Nicanor Gate, through which the Jews passed through the court of the Gentiles to the court of the women. It was here that the famous barrier was erected known as the Middle Wall of Partition, where announcements were made warning Gentiles upon pain of death, you can't go any further. You go any further, we're going to take your life. Now, if there was a place that might elicit good, goodwill to one's fellow man, it was here because it was magnificently beautiful. Herod had made it one of the wonders of the world. So people's hearts were inspired and they were moved in this particular spot. So I don't know if there's people that carried him there or if it was his idea. Either way, it was a good idea because people felt um, beneficent at that particular spot. Now, Peter and John saw his condition, heard his request for alms. He's got his, you know, he's got his hands extended. And it says in verse 4, <clears throat> this is so powerful, fixing his eyes on him. With John, Peter said, look at us. Now, this man thought, all right, they're telling me, look at them. I'm about to get, I'm about to get a, major, a major gift. Here we go. So he looked at these two men, expecting to receive something from them. And then verse 6, Peter said, silver and gold have I none, but such as I have give I you. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, say it with me, everybody, rise up and walk. Now I'm going to stop right here and say you can't give what you don't have. But you can give what you do have. Now Peter said, hey, you know what? We don't have any spare change. But here's what we do have, and what we do have, we can give away. Folks, Jesus intended for him in our lives to be exported, to be given, to be, you're contagious with a good thing. You've got, you've got the Holy Spirit, you've got the answer to life, you are filled with him, you know him, and, and you don't have to be a theologian. You don't have to have a master's degree. or All you have to do is know him. And if you know him, you can export him. And so he says, silver and gold I don't have, but here's what I do have, and it's better than silver and gold. In Jesus' name, get up. And verse 7 says, he took him by the right hand that had been asking for alms, and he lifted him up. And everybody read the last part with me because this gives me Holy Ghost bumps. And immediately his feet and ankle bones received strength. 
Now, I don't know what he felt. I know the woman with the issue of blood could tell that something had happened in her body. I, I don't know what he felt. My guess is it was either a warmth or it was something like an electric jolt. It was the power of God. And he looks at these two guys, and they're, they're blue-collar, working-class fishermen. But they were in touch with Jesus, and they were filled with the Holy Spirit, and that made them extremely valuable. Can you say with me, I'm valuable? Say with me, I'm carrying precious cargo. Amen. You know who that is? It's the Lord Jesus Christ. Christ in you is the hope of glory. Now, his healing was instantaneous. Shocked and overwhelmed at what had happened, the man began, I love this, to leap. He was trying out his new ankles. He had never stood in his life. Are y'all with me? I know it's been a long day. We've worked hard, all of us, all day long. But can you say that's powerful? Because this man had never stood up. He's looking down going, how in the world am I standing up? I have never stood up. So get this. Not only did God heal his legs, but God taught him to walk in the same moment. Because he had never walked. And not only that, he started jumping. Hey, you get me healed if I haven't walked in my whole life. I'm going to be jumping. I'm going to be doing cartwheels. I'm going to be running. That's why in the second service particularly, you'll see a bunch of young people down here dancing and doing what they do, worshiping God demonstratively. And I've seen some visitors come in, and their eyes are like silver dollars. Now, let me just tell you what that is. Those kids have been set free from drugs. They've been set free from all kinds of things, and they can't stand still. So I tell them, go for it. Go for it. Amen. So, so here he is. It, he begins to leap. He begins to jump all around. He was no longer chained to charity. He was free. And so he decided, well, since these guys have, have done something that gave me my ability to walk for the first time in my life, I believe I'll go where they go. So they carried him to church. They went into the temple. And when he went into the temple, everybody knew this man. This is very clear. We're going to see it in a couple of verses later. Everybody knew who he was because he'd been sitting at this place begging for a long time. And now he comes in walking, and it caused no small sensation. It says in verses 8 to 10, so he, leaping up, stood and then walked and entered the temple with them, walking and leaping and praising God. And all the people saw him walking and praising God. Then they knew See how they knew him? They knew it was the ones who sat begging alms at the beautiful gate of the temple. And they were filled with wonder and amazement at what had happened to him. You know what you are to a lot of people? You're a wonder and you're an amazement. They can't believe what has happened to you. I still have people in my life that are shocked that I ended up a pastor. I think my mother is still shocked to a level. Sometimes I'm shocked. But they're, they're, they're just blown away. They're looking saying, how in the world has this happened to him? A total, irrefutable, undeniable miracle. Their reaction really does remind me of so many people, uh, how they respond to the radical transformation of somebody who gets saved. 
They can't believe the one who was crippled by drugs or crippled by alcohol or who lived promiscuously or whatever it was is now whole and gasp going to church every week. Amen. See, God saved you to make other people. You know what a sign is? A sign points to something. You know what a wonder is? Is what makes somebody wonder. A wonder makes people wonder. Jesus ought to change your life to the point where people around you wonder at the wonder of you and what he's done in you. Verse verse 11, now as the lame man who was healed held on to Peter and John, did that touch you? He said, I ain't letting go. You guys have changed my life. I'm not letting go. I'm holding on to you. All the people ran together to them in the porch, which is called Solomon's, greatly amazed. Peter sees their reaction and like a good preacher. He said, I got a crowd. I think I'm going to preach. So now as, as, a, as one, I've, I have preached, minister of the word since I was 18. And now at 42, I'm going to tell you, I've been doing it a long time. No, I know. I'm just kidding. Make sure you're watching. 52, really. No, no. I feel 42. Okay. I really do. I really do. So now, um, but I, I've been preaching a long time and I've heard a lot of preachers, many, hundreds and hundreds of preachers through the years. And I'm going to tell you that Peter's sermon here is a masterpiece. I want you to keep in mind he has no notes. It's totally extemporaneous. It's utterly ad-lib. He is preaching under the anointing of the Holy Spirit of God. And yet it's a masterpiece. And you've got to remember now, folks, this guy was a middle-aged, blue-collar, working-class fisherman when suddenly one day there was a lone figure standing on the shore and called him and said, follow me. And he followed him. And in three and a half years, I want you to look at what he did with this man. Peter is you and me. He's not Paul. Paul was an intellectual giant. He was a, he was a scholar squared. But Peter is you and me. And I want you to look at what came out of his mouth. I've got to take the rest of the night on his sermon, and I'm going to pick it apart, and I want us to learn some things from it. Now, he begins with talking about the rejection of Christ, the sadness of it. Now, he's got a huge crowd now. There's been a healing. They're all looking at these two men who prayed over this man and saw him healed. So the first thing he says to this crowd is, let me tell you about the sadness of the rejection of Christ. Verse 12, so when Peter saw it, he responded to the people, men of Israel, why do you marvel at this? Or why look so intently at us as though by our own power or godliness, we had made this man walk? We didn't do it. Look at verse 13, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God of our fathers, glorified his servant Jesus. Now, for the first time, they're pricked because they know where he's going now whom you delivered up and denied in the presence of Pilate 
when he was determined to let him go. He's already meddling. You know what he has told them? He has told them he was, Jesus was God's Messiah and Pilate wanted to let him go, but you insisted he be killed. Oh, man. So it's quiet now. He's not, there's not much people saying, amen, preach it, brother. You with me? There's no amen section in this message. Pilate would have released him if you hadn't insisted on his crucifixion. So he's making it personal right off the bat. He died because of you. You were instrumental in killing Jesus. So after he deals with the sadness of rejection of Jesus, he deals with the seriousness of it. Verse 14, but you deny the Holy One and the just, and instead you ask for a murderer to be granted to you and kill the prince of life. You took the prince, you, you took the worst of the worst and rejected the best of the best. Not only did you insist on his death, you chose a murderer, a common criminal to be released instead of Jesus. I'm going to preach on this the week leading up to Easter on how incredibly and shockingly and stunningly to Barabbas, Barabbas was set free because of Jesus. Barabbas was set free because of Jesus. But then Peter declares the seriousness of it. Verse 14, you denied the Holy One. Oh, I'm sorry, I just dealt with that. Now, there's no doubt that great conviction had now seized this crowd. He wouldn't have been killed if, if, but for you. You commanded him to be crucified, and you took a murderer, and you embraced a murderer, and a murderer who was headed to the cross was set free, and instead you killed the prince of life. Great conviction has seized this crowd. So Peter now moves on from the rejection of Christ to the resurrection of Christ, the proof of it, the proof of it. Verse 15 the second half, whom God raised from the dead, of which we are witnesses. Nothing better than an eyewitness. Now, I tell you that I watch forensic files all the time. I watch Dateline ID. If I lost my Dateline ID channel, I wouldn't even have Dish. It's the only thing I watch. And I watch it because I, I see God bringing about justice. I see I see. The word of God confirmed all the time. The wickedness of men's hearts revealed all the time. Some guy next door kills somebody. He looks like Joe, neighbor. You can't believe he did it. You see the word of God's testimony about the heart of man confirmed over and over again. And then you see the, the finger of justice moving. And God brings it. And I just like it because it's real. And Hollywood didn't write it. So, so I watch it. But... I got to tell you that right here, great conviction seized them and and they they were witnesses. The disciples were witnesses, eyewitnesses of Jesus' resurrection. And usually when a murderer goes for life with no parole, it's because there was an eyewitness. I saw him. I saw him do it. I was standing right there or I was across the street or... I I saw it happen, and they'll get that person on the stand, and an eyewitness carries incredible weight. See, that's what you are. You're an eyewitness. 
Like I said, you don't have to have a theology degree. If, if, if you saw a car wreck tonight on the way home, it happened right in front of you, and you pulled over and waited for the police to arrive, they're going to come up to you and say, what did you see? Well, I saw this car moved over in the other lane. He wasn't looking where he was going. He hit that car. They both went off the road, and it was the one who went over in the other lane. It was his fault. I saw it. Incredible weight. Now, these disciples are going to tell them, we're eyewitnesses. He appeared to us over and over and over again after you killed him. Now, you need to understand that the great debate in Jerusalem at the time of Peter's sermon was what happened to the body. That was the going debate. Now, it's hard for us to imagine how red hot that topic was back then. But when Peter stood up to preach this message, it it had not been long at all since Jesus was put in that tomb. And when they couldn't find the body, when the body turned up missing, it became the headline of the Jerusalem Post. What happened to the body? What happened to the body of Jesus? How did they lose it? The empty tomb had confounded the Sanhedrin. Now, let me tell you who the Sanhedrin are. Sanhedrin was the supreme council or court in ancient Israel. It was comprised of 70 men plus the high priest, who served as its president. The members came from the chief priests, the scribes, and the elders, but there's no record of how they were chosen. Now, it was these religious leaders, the top-notch religious leaders of the Sanhedrin, who had been instrumental in demanding the execution of Jesus. These are the guys supposed to know the Bible. It was religious folk that killed him. I'll tell you what, I'd rather deal with a pack of angry hell's angels than a pack of angry religious folks. Nobody will chew you up and spit you out like religious folks. They'll shred you. They will, they will draw and quarter you. They will chew you up and spit you out and move on to the next victim. Religious folks who do it in the name of God. And if you've ever been come against by a pack of religious folk and live to tell about it. You bear in your body the marks of the Lord Jesus. I like people that love you in Jesus' name. Amen? But these religious leaders are the ones who said, we want him killed, we want him executed. And when they learned the body was no longer in the tomb, they silenced the Roman soldiers with money. Matthew 28, 12 says, when they were assembled with the elders and had taken counsel, they gave a large sum of money to the soldiers, and they concocted a lie that the disciples had stolen the body. And now look at the Bible says in Matthew 28, 15, this saying or lie is commonly reported among the Jews to this day. You know what they say, a lie will go around the world before the truth gets its pants on. You ever notice that? Now, so to this day, there are many Jews who believe, yeah, the disciples stole the body because this was the lie, and it was a bought lie. It was a bribe, and the Roman soldiers took it, and that's why they agreed to it 
So they just zipped their lips and took the money and walked away, and it spread all through Jerusalem. The disciples somehow, some way, got past that big bunch of Roman soldiers and moved that huge stone and got in there and carried his body. It was preposterous, but it was a lie, and it worked, at least with many. But now Peter is saying to a transfixed crowd, we did not steal the body, but we know where it is. We know where it is. God raised Jesus from the dead, and we are eyewitnesses. He appeared to us over and over again. We touched him. We ate with him. We walked with him, and we watched him ascend back into the clouds. So now this crowd is absolutely nailed. The Holy Ghost is on them so strong, they can't move. They can hardly draw a breath. And Peter next moves from the proof of the resurrection to the power of the resurrection. Verse 16, you want to know how this guy got healed? We're going to tell you. His name, through faith in his name, has made this man strong, whom you see and know. Yes, the faith which comes through him has given him this perfect soundness in the presence of you all. You're all looking at an undeniable miracle. And I'm telling you, says Peter, the way it happened was faith in the name of the one you killed. He is risen from the dead. He's alive and well. And faith in his name healed this man. Look at him. Faith in Jesus' name healed this man. You crucified him. But God raised him from the dead, now in his name. This mighty miracle has taken place in the healing of this lame man who all of you knew and know. And says Peter, and here's the whole reason for the sign, salvation is also offered to men by faith in his name. The same name that brought healing to this man is the name that will bring salvation to you. So this great miracle was a sign pointing to Jesus, and that's what miracles are for. They're signs that point upward. Nobody could have done this. It had to be supernatural. So now Peter moves from proof of the resurrection to the power of it, and next he goes to the prophecy of it. He's going to take them back to the Old Testament prophets they all knew so well to further support his message on who Jesus was and is. Verse 17, yet now, brethren... I know that you did it in ignorance, as did also your rulers. But those things which God foretold by the mouth of all his prophets that the Christ would suffer, he has thus fulfilled. All the prophets that they have been raised reading every week, every Sabbath in the synagogues, now God's word had been fulfilled. Like just take Isaiah 53. They, they all knew Isaiah 53, where the suffering of Christ is explicitly laid out in amazingly graphic language. Let me just read it to you. He has borne our griefs. That's the Hebrew word, sicknesses. Everybody say, he's borne my griefs. Sicknesses. And carried our sorrows. That's the Hebrew for pains. He's carried our pains. He was wounded. There's another word for our transgressions. And do you know that in the Hebrew language, that literally means pierced through. There was no cross when Isaiah wrote this. It's as amazing a prediction as David in Psalms 22. 
They have pierced my hands and my feet. There was no cross. Folks, the word we're studying, we're standing on holy ground. Because he was wounded. He was pierced through for our transgressions. He was bruised, which is the word for crushed, for our iniquities. The Lord laid on him the iniquity of all of us. They knew these passages like the back of their hand. And Peter is telling them, these things were fulfilled through Jesus. The prophets predicted the one that you've seen. Now next, Peter calls them to repentance with the promise of times of refreshing if they repent. Look what he says in 19. Repent, therefore, and be converted that your sins may be blotted out so that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord. I shared with you Sunday that the very first step across the bridge to salvation is repentance. Repentance. We don't like that word. I love that word. Because where would we be if we could not repent? Now, how many of you have repented more than once since you got saved? How many of you had to repent this week? Come on, tell the truth. How many of you are glad for the blood of Jesus that every time you repent, he forgives you? Where would we be without that beautiful six-letter word? But Peter said, he said, listen to me, you've got to be, repent and be converted, which is synonymous with born again. You must repent and be born again, that your sins may be blotted out. And look what happens once you've done that. Times of refreshing. Everybody say times of refreshing. Wouldn't you love a time of refreshing, would you? Did you have one today? I did. I had a time of refreshing. Times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord. Notice, God pours out refreshing, a touch from his spirit when we repent and are born again and our sins are blotted out. Now, the times of refreshing that he's referring to is those Old Testament prophecies that promised that before the return of Christ, there would be an outpouring of the Spirit and that many Jews would repent and turn to God. The message to the hushed crowd was clear. No repentance, no refreshing. And folks, that's true for us. Uh, You may have been saved 40 years. I've been saved longer than that. But when I repent, when I repent, there is refreshing. You know, you say something, you think something, you do something, you cop an attitude. And you know that you've grieved God. The best thing you can do is immediately repent. Say, Lord, forgive me. I shouldn't have said that. I shouldn't have thought it. I shouldn't have done it. I shouldn't have had that attitude. It was wrong. I confess it to you. Please forgive me and cleanse me from all unrighteousness. And I like to add all defilement of flesh and spirit. And if you're sincere, you feel a refreshing. You feel a lightening of the load. You feel peace. When you make peace with God, you experience the peace of God. So say with me, no repentance, no refreshing. Repentance, refreshing. Now notice with me the beauty and the progression of Peter's ad lib extemporaneous message. Because he watch how he moves steadily. Man, this blessed me as I saw this today. He moves steadily along from proof of the resurrection, to the power of it, to the prophecy of it, to a call to repentance and refreshing, 
And then next he deals with the promise of restitution. Verse 20, that he may send Jesus Christ, who was preached to you before, whom heaven must receive until the times of restitution of all things, which God has spoken by the mouth of all his holy prophets since the world began. That's a mouthful. Notice that he says, I'm talking to you about something prophets have predicted since the world began. And I stopped today and I thought, is that true? And then I remembered in Jude 14, we know from Jude that Enoch, who was the seventh from Adam, way before Noah, way back at the dawn of time, Enoch prophesied these words, behold, the Lord comes with 10,000s of his saints. Preaching the return of Christ before Noah floated his boat. Now that's got to be God. Amen. That can only be God. Now the word restitution comes from a Greek word meaning to restore to a former state. He's talking about the Old Testament prophets' predictions of the restoration of Israel to the land and of the restoration of a theocracy, which means the rule and the reign of God. Under David's greater son, none other than the Lord Jesus Christ, the son of David. Folks, can I tell you tonight, this world is winding down to an end. The end is coming. Every movie ends with those words, the end, the end. Let me tell you something. There is a the end to this world. This world is winding down. Uh, We're headed toward, prophecies are being fulfilled all of the time, particularly those regarding Israel, which is the timepiece of the end times. You watch Israel more than anything else as the end draws near because it is the hourglass of end time prophecy. Now, it's all coming to a close. There's going to be a the end. There will be an evil man comes on the stage of history for about seven years, and then he will be shut down when, behold, the Lord comes with 10,000s of his saints. He will be shut down. He'll be cast in the lake of fire. So will the beast that helped him come into power. So will death. So will Hades. And a new world is coming when there is going to be a theocracy. No more voting. No more Democrats and Republicans and Libertarians and all of this stuff. God is going to install a king. And that king, he's not going to have, it's not going to be by vote. God's going to say, I'm going to install my king forever and forever and ever. He will rule the world with a rod of righteousness. His name is Jesus. And that's what he means when he says here in Peter's incredible message, he says, heaven must receive Jesus until the time of restitution of all things. When everything's going to be restored, it's all going to be restored to its original pristine condition. And this is something that all the Jews of Jesus' day claimed they wanted, but then they rejected and killed the very one sent to ultimately bring it to pass. Now, unfortunately, while a few of the Jews repented after Peter's sermon, and many, many Gentiles did, most of the Jews did not. So Peter next warns them with coming retribution. Verse 22, Moses truly said to the fathers, The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brethren. Him you shall hear in all things 
whatever he says to you. And it shall be that every soul who will not hear that prophet shall be utterly destroyed from among the people. You notice how he perfectly quotes the Bible? Ad lib, extemporaneously. It just flows off his tongue like honey. There's such power in the Holy Spirit. He's quoting Deuteronomy 18, 15 and verse 19, a passage that every one of them knew like the backs of their hands. It was undeniably messianic. And that prophet that Moses had commanded them to listen to had come for three and a half years. He had crossed and recrossed the land, preaching, teaching, performing miracles. All of them had heard him. And hearing him, they had not heard. Jesus himself had quoted Isaiah right to them about them. He quoted Isaiah about the Pharisees and Sadducees. He said, this people's heart is wax gross. Their ears are dull of hearing. Their eyes they have closed. Lest at any time they should see with their eyes, hear with their ears, and should understand with their heart, and should be converted or born again, and I would heal them. You know people can hear and not hear? You know that every week I stand up here and preach, and, and we have a, a huge conglomeration of different backgrounds and, and, and different people who are here, educated, uneducated, black, white, yellow, red. It's multiracial. Thank God that's exactly what I want because that's what heaven's going to look like. And, and, and it's, uh, uh, there's just, just a, a huge, diff- uh, just all kinds of different people. And I can tell with some of them, they hear, but they don't hear. We're having people get saved every week, but there are some out there that are still not saved and they heard, but they didn't hear. See, God has to give you the grace to hear. See, you've been witnessing to some people in your life for years and you wonder, how have they not heard? They hear me, but they don't. They see see the Bible truth, but they don't. Jesus quoted this about the people of his day. And tragically, destruction was imminent. Moses, whom they revered above all others except Abraham, had said destruction was imminent. They had treated that prophet Moses talked about, Jesus Christ, far worse than their daddies, their their ancestors had treated Moses. They murmured against Moses, criticized Moses, disobeyed the word of God through Moses, gave Moses all kinds of grief, but that's nothing compared to what they did to Jesus. And so death and damnation are staring them in the face. Now catch this, everybody. Peter is preaching, and in only a a few short decades, exactly what he said. Listen, all who will not hear that prophet will be utterly destroyed from among the people. That prophet came. That prophet spoke. That prophet did miracles. That prophet was killed by them. That prophet was raised from the dead. Jesus Christ, in a few decades, they were destroyed. Jerusalem was surrounded by the Romans. A huge, massive, unprecedented massacre of the Jewish people happened. Some say over a million died. Jesus said, oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, how many times? I would have gathered you under my wings like a hen gathers her chicks, but you would not hear me. Do 
He told his disciples, the day is going to come, this city is surrounded by an enemy, and this temple you're talking about and bragging on is going to be taken down to the ground, and not one stone is going to be left standing on another because you knew not the time of your visitation. It's so serious when God comes knocking on your heart. Because you know what I got all my life? I'll wait till I'm in a nursing home and nothing matters anymore, and then I'll get saved and come to Christ. You know what? Most who say that never do. When he comes knocking, you're having a visitation. You're having a visitation. And it's very, very serious how you respond to that visitation. Behold, I stand at the door and I knock. If any man hears my voice and opens the door, see, when you hear it, you've got to open it. If any man hears my voice and opens the door of their heart, then I'll come into him and sup with him and he with me. But we have a responsibility to say yes to the knock. But if we say no to the knock, listen, you're at a, you're at a fork in the road right there. Because if you say no to the knock, you're, you're going off. And, and I personally believe that God comes and knocks on our heart in pivotal moments, in, 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 in key moments in our life where he knows if we don't come to him, we're really going to a dark place. So he knocks. And if we let him in and let grace save us, then we're saved. But if we hear and don't hear, we see and don't see, and we reject him, he may return to you in your lifetime. He may not and knock again. He may not. That's why every week I give the invitation. You know the story of Moody's fire. D.L. Moody was the great evangelist of the 1800s. And he's really the one who paved the way for mass evangelism in the West. There was no, uh, nobody before him put together mass evangelism like he did. Now, he had Whitfield and the Wesley brothers in the 1700s preaching in the fields in the open air, but they didn't have buildings. Moody started using buildings. And, and, and in America and England, he was extremely popular. He was the Billy Graham of the 1800s. But he was preaching a revival in Chicago. He had huge crowds hearing him every night in Chicago. Massive crowds. And this one night, he preached the gospel. And he said, you know, I want all of you to go home, and I want you to think about what you've heard and come back tomorrow night. And he didn't give an invitation. For the first time before ever and for the first time ever after, he never did it again. But that night, he didn't give an invitation. And that night, in a woman's barn, a cow knocked over a lantern, and a fire started, and the fire spread. And in a matter of a few short hours, all of Chicago was ablaze, and hundreds of the people that had been at Moody's meeting that night died in the blaze. And he said, never again. Well, I let it go without giving an invitation. And he had to repent for it. That's why I give an invitation all the time. We're at almost 70 people in about six weeks have been saved. And, and see, I could walk out and just assume because it's church, everybody's saved. But I've learned never assume everybody's saved. So I, I, I say all that to say the knock is so important. 
God visits and God knocks. Will you let him in? Will you continue to walk with him? When the Holy Ghost prompts you to do something or to not do something, to go here or to go there, do you obey? As Peter nears the end of the message, he reminds them of many other prophets that predicted the very same thing. Verse 24, yes, and all the prophets from Samuel and those who follow, as many as have spoken, have also foretold these days. Not just Isaiah or Jeremiah or Ezekiel or Daniel, but many others. Samuel was the last. He mentions Samuel. Samuel was the last of the judges and the first of the prophets. While he wrote no prophecies down on paper, he certainly served in the office of a prophet. It was Samuel who anointed David as the first king of Israel. And Samuel prophesied of the establishment of David's kingdom that would last forever. So he surely wasn't talking about David, but a descendant of David. Because David was of the tribe of Judah, and Jesus came from the tribe of Judah via Mary. And David's greater son, Jesus Christ, would usher in an everlasting kingdom. So finally, Peter proclaims their responsibility. Verse 25, you are sons of the prophets. And of the covenant which God made with our fathers, saying to Abraham, and in your seed all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Here's what he's telling them. The fact that they were sons of the prophets magnified their sin and increased their responsibility. Because you could say they were raised in the preacher's house. All right? They were PKs in a way. Because they had been raised on all these prophecies. They weren't in the dark. They weren't pagans. They were raised in all kinds of light. So of all people on earth, they should have known who and what manner of man it was who had moved among them, healing their sick, casting out devils, cleansing lepers, raising their dead. Their responsibility was inescapable. And then he really ends it with a zinger. Verse 26, to you first, God, having raised up his servant Jesus, sent him to bless you and turning away every one of you from your iniquities. You, he says to them, got to hear him first. He came to you first. He came to the house of Israel first, and you rejected him. He came to his own, John 1 says, and his own received him not. Can we stand together tonight? How many of you know we've got a lot of light? Do you know that? All the, the word that you hear, we got a lot of light. And how many of you can say, Pastor Jeff, with you, I want to obey the voice of the Lord. And when he knocks, I want to, I want to go. And, and if you are uncertain about your salvation, there's a knock tonight. There's a knock tonight. Do you hear the knock? It's Jesus touching your heart, prompting your heart. Open the door and let him in. Can we just lift our hands to the Lord? Say, Jesus, we receive you in. Fill us with the Holy Spirit. Thank you, Lord, for this powerful, powerful message of Simon Peter. This masterpiece, a sermonic masterpiece. And thank you, Lord, that after this message, thousands were saved. Thousands were saved. 
And Lord, we know that we're in the hour of salvation. We know that the final grains of sand are sifting through the hourglass of time. We know the time is short. And so, Lord, help us to reach as many as we can in as many ways as we can, as fast as we can. Now, will you lift your hand and say, Lord, make me a vessel. Use me to be a wonder, that Jesus would be a wonder in me. In the name of Jesus.